All right, let's go on. So we'd gotten to um, the end of the induction, and just to remind you, um, what ha it begins a little bit the way Dante begins, which is that um, the speaker, the narrator, is um, just there somewhere. If you read, if you remember the lines written in um, the Bay of Lerici, which, as I say, was um, written on the back page of um, one of the sheets of the Triumph of Life. Um, what he says there, um, as he's looking at the moon, um, I think in your edition this will just be um, the page before. Um, I guess I'm wondering whether it's worth um, reading the whole thing. I, I think I hope we'll have time to, but I think we won't now. Um, but at line 35 of um, the lines written in the Bay of Lerici, he says, I dare not speak my thoughts, but thus disturbed and weak I sat and watched the vessels glide. Um, so he's describing his thoughts right after uh, the woman he loves has just departed from him. And he's sitting alone watching um, the ships on the bay um, and feeling um, lonely and pensive and thoughtful and sad. And he doesn't say what he's thinking. Um, so there, at the same time, there's a thought which must remain untold. I dare not speak my thoughts, he says. And um, at the beginning of the Triumph of Life, he says, everything in the world was waking up except for me. Um, I had been awake all night. Um, and um, what kept me awake were thoughts which must remain untold. Um, but I, whom thoughts which must remain untold, had kept as wakeful as the stars that gem the cone of night. Now they were laid asleep, stretched my faint limbs. So he's tired, he's on a mountainside, um, he's looking over the western waters, um, and he's thinking about something that he won't tell us. Later he's going to say that his heart is sick of one sad thought. Um, but what that thought is, he doesn't say. Um, but that thought, uh, um, both in the lines written in Bailarici and here, um, it's as though it's the, um, the sand that the pearl is accreting around. There's something there. And all his other thoughts and experiences and vision is um, in some way going round that thought. So it's morning. Um, everything is waking up. And he lies down. And then a kind of trance comes over him. And What's trance-like about it, this is just going over what we talked about on Tuesday, what's trance-like about it is that nothing has changed. He sees exactly what he's seen before, and yet it's all become estranged in some way. There's something strange going on, but he doesn't know what it is. And that's the beginning of the vision. Um, but then immediately following that, the vision is rolled on his brain, and then a vision on my brain was rolled. And that's like the moment at the beginning of the Divine Comedy when Dante finds himself in a strange place and there's only one direction to go and then he meets Virgil 
who begins to lead him. So then, so we got to line 40. Um, I knew, just going back a little bit, at line 34, and I knew that I had felt the freshness of that dawn, bathed in the same cold dew my brow and hair, and sat as thus upon that slope of lawn, under the selfsame bough, and heard as there the birds, the fountains, and the ocean hold sweet talk in music through the enamored air. I knew that I'd already felt all that, heard all that, seen all that, and yet it was a strange vision, a trance. And then a vision on my brain was rolled. And then we get into the vision, um, which he begins um, at line 41. Um, so notice as we go through, I hope you're just noticing the amazing rhyming in this poem, the Terzarima rhyming. Um, just if you're interested, Shelley does Terzarima very differently from Dante. Um, it's the same form, but in Dante, it's almost always end-stopped. That is, Dante's terzarimas almost always have pauses at the end of every line. And generally, the ends of sentences will correspond with the ends of tercets. Um, that is, you will rarely find um, a sentence ending in mid-line, almost never in Dante, by almost never, I mean maybe one in a hundred sentences ends midline, um, and probably nine in ten sentences end at the end of a tercet. Um, Shelley is very different. Shelley is much more rapid in the way he writes, um, but what he shares with Dante is extreme compression in their writing. Um, but Shelley writes much longer sentences than Dante does, so. As in that trance of wondrous thought I lay, this was the tenor of my waking dream. So now he's going to tell us about his waking dream. Methought I sat beside a public way. So now he thinks he's beside a road. Methought I sat beside a public way, thick strewn with summer dust, and a great stream of people there was, hurrying to and fro, numerous as gnats upon the evening gleam. So people everywhere, they're gnat, like gnats at sunset. So it's sunrise, but he's seeing all these people like gnats at sunset everywhere, hurrying back and forth on this public way, this public highway, this path. Numerous as gnats upon the evening gleam, all hastening onward. Yet... None seemed to know whither he went, or whence he came, or why he made one of the multitude. So everyone is rushing to and fro, but no one seems to know where they're going, whither he went, or whence he came, where they came from, or why. Now hang on to that line, whither he went, or whence he came, or why because some variation of that line is going to appear three more times in the course of the poem. It's a kind of marker in the poem. That question, or that implicit question, um, where are we going? Where is anyone going? Where did they come from? Why is this happening? Um, the questions of life, those are the questions. No one in life seems to know. Everyone is busy, yet no one seems to know where they're going or where they came from, or why, why they were born, why they exist. So that's a crucial question, a crucial line um, describing human experience, human life. 
So all were hastening onward, yet none seemed to know whither he went or whence he came or why he made one of the multitude, yet so was bored amid the crowd as through the sky one of the million leaves of summer's beer. So um, everyone is born now the way leaves are born on the wind. Um, everyone is born amid the crowd like um, leaves being born among the wind. Summer's beer means what time, what, what season is it? The million leaves of summer's beer? Fall. Fall, yeah. All the leaves have fallen, and now they're just swirling through the autumn wind, as in the Ode to the West Wind, um, where the wind chariotist, um, chariots the, um, um, the seeds to their dark wintry beds, but also um, pursues all the leaves, yellow and pale and red and, um, and, and brown and hectic red, pestilence-stricken multitudes, is how he describes the leaves of autumn in the Ode to the West Wind pestilence-stricken multitudes, as though the leaves are people. Now we get the opposite metaphor, as though these people are all leaves. Um, that metaphor of people as leaves goes all the way back to Homer. Um, it's a metaphor Homer used. It's a metaphor Dante used. Um, it's a metaphor Milton used um, most recently for in, in Shelley's sequence. Um, the fallen angels are thick as leaves, Milton says, thick as leaves um, the, um, piled up in Vallambroso. Um, that's how many they are. They're like the leaves from the trees. So here are all the leaves, all the people, all, this multitude. Um, each person in the crowd looked like one of the million leaves of summer's beer, and we see everyone in life, every stage of life, every kind of person, old age and youth, manhood and infancy, mixed in one mighty torrent did appear, some flying from the thing they feared and some seeking the object of another's fear. So some seem to be Fleeing, the thing they feared, death, deformity, um, bankruptcy, bad grades, um, loss of love, all the things that might um, make life a panicky affair. And others seemed to be seek, and some were seeking the object of another sphere, that is looking for ways to take power over others, looking for something that would enable them to cause fear to others so that they could take power over them. And others still, others, as with steps towards the tomb, poured on the trodden worms that crawled beneath. So some were just looking at the worms that they were walking on. Um, presumably because they're stooped and looking downwards and they're thinking about the worms that they're stepping on. But as we know, the worm, even the poor worm that we step upon, will turn. The worm turns. Um, and the worms that were trodden are also the worms of the grave. So some poured on the trodden worm that crawled beneath and others moonfully, mournfully within the gloom of their own shadow walked and called it death. 
So um, remember the Witch of Atlas, who um, is um, is resting in the light, reposing the light of her own loveliness. Now we get the opposite of that. Some mournfully within the gloom of their own shadow walked and called it death. So they are casting the shadow in which they walk, and they call that death. Somehow it's some projection of theirs which they're thinking of as death. And some fled from it as it were a ghost, fled from their own shadows, as though their shadows were ghosts, fearful. Everyone is fearful. And some fled from it as it were a ghost, half fainting in the affliction of vain breath no matter how hard they try to flee from their shadow, um, how much they pant, they exert themselves to flee. It's just the affliction of vain breath, and they're half fainting in that affliction. But more with motions with each other crossed, pursued or shunned the shadows the clouds through, or birds within the noonday ether lost. So some are chasing or, or fleeing their own shadows, but most are crossing over each other, tra- chasing cloud shadows or running away from cloud shadows. Shadows of clouds or shadows thrown by birds within the noonday ether lost. That is, birds we can't see because they're so high and so in the sun, but we can see their shadows. Um, Here he's thinking a little bit in this poem where he's kind of going over his own poetry of his poem of his we didn't do, but a very famous poem, The Skylark, Hail to thee, blithe spirit, bird thou never wert, um, where Noel Coward gets the name of the play, Blithe Spirit. Um, so So the Skylark is famous. You know this, right, Maria, that the Skylark is famous for being a bird that you can hear but not see because it flies so high and it sings so clearly that um, the song of the lark, it's what Juliet talks about in Romeo and Juliet, the song of the lark is a song of a bird that is invisible because it's so high. Um, Shakespeare in a sonnet talks about the lark at heaven's gate. Um, So here these birds, they're they're, they're like skylarks, these wonderful birds but they're lost in the noonday ether, in the, in the radiance of the light, and we only see their shadows. Um, so upon that bat- path where flowers never grew. Now, that was a long sentence. Let's go back um, to get at least to that, um, that semicolon. Um, Well, where does the sentence begin? <laughs> he wondered. Um, where is it? But? but more. Oh, sorry, yes. But more with motions with each other cross, pursued or shunned the shadows the clouds through, or birds within the noonday ether lost upon that path where flowers never grew. So there, so there are no flowers on the public way that they are crossing to and fro, um, but only shadows. Um, that matters a bit because there are flowers where he and it will turn out Rousseau are sitting. Um, that is, there are flowers to the side of the path. Um, a lot of these images are reworkings and complete transmutations of images in Dante. 
Um, in Dante, as you go up in paradise, you come to pathways that are surrounded by flowers. Um, here, it's the absence of flowers that are noticeable, that is noticeable. Um, and weary with vain toil and faint for thirst, they, these people, all rushing on this road, heard not the fountains whose melodious dew out of their mossy cells forever burst, nor felt the breeze which from the forest told of grassy paths and woodlawns interspersed with overarching elms and caverns culled, and violet banks, that is, banks with violets on them, where sweet dreams brood, but they pursued their serious folly as of old. So outside the path, in the woods, there are breezes, there's the sound of waters, there's the sound of fountains, but they're rushing back and forth on this highway, and they don't hear it. Um, weary with, faint toil, with vain toil and faint for thirst, they heard not the fountains whose melodious dew out of their mossy cells forever burst, or felt the breeze which from the forest told of grassy paths and woodlawns interspersed with overarching elms and caverns culled and violet banks where sweet dreams brood, but they pursued their serious folly as of old. Um, again, you could remember um, the lines written on hearing of the death of Napoleon, um, where as of old is one of the old rhymes that are being pounded into you. Earth does what she does as of old. They're pursuing their serious folly. Um, that's a Dantesque oxymoron, serious folly. Um, almost Miltonic, but very much Dante. Um, that is, folly is what's not serious. Serious is what is not folly. But for them, it's both. It's serious folly as of old. And as I gazed, so he's still there looking at all this, and as I gazed, methought that in the way, that is in the highway, methought that in the way the throng grew wilder, as the woods of June when the south wind shakes the extinguished day. So it was like a storm coming up in the woods in June, um, and the throng is now growing wild like branches shaking in the wind, which is a presage of storm. And as I, as I gazed, me thought that in the way the throng grew wilder as the woods of June, when the south wind shakes the extinguished day, and a cold glare, intenser than the noon, but icy, cold, obscured, with data light. So Mary Shelley, when she edited this poem for publication after Shelley's death, put in the word blinding there, which seems reasonable enough, and will give you the rhythm of the line. And a cold gaze, intenser than the noon, but icy cold, obscured with blinding light, the sun as he the stars. So now what's happened is we've seen starlight gemming the cone of night, then sunrise comes, and the stars are laid asleep because we don't see the stars once the sun rises. And now another source of light comes, which makes it impossible to see sunlight because it's so bright. That's the light from this cold glare, intenser than the noon itself, brighter than the glare of 
noon now obscures the sun the way the sun has obscured the, the um, stars. So there's a persistent image in the triumph of life, um, a title which, by the time you get to the end of this poem, you will find remarkably grim. Um, but there's a persistent image in the triumph of life of veils of light. Shelley loves veils. He's always talking about veils. Again, the witch of Atlas, the veil of life and death in, um, in Mont Blanc. Um, but in this case, it's veils of light. Remember that when a veil of light is drawn or evening hills, they glimmer. Um, in the triumph of life, light, far from illuminating and showing what it's cast on, light veils and obscures what it enters upon. So we can't see the stars because of the sun. Sunlight obscures the stars rather than making them more visible. In the triumph of life, light blinds rather than disclosing. So the stars are covered over by sunlight, but now the sun itself, or himself, because remember he's a spirit hastening to his task of glory and of good, the sun is obscured by the cold glare, intenser than the noon, but icy cold that is now approaching. So, um, and a cold glare intenser than the, than the noon, but icy cold obscured with something like the sun, is he the stars? And then we get an amazing simile, like the young moon when on the sunlit limits of the night her white shell trembles amid crimson air and whilst the sleeping tempest gathers might, doth as a herald of its coming bear the ghost of her dead mother, whose dim form bends in dark ether from her infant's chair. So came a chariot on the silent storm of its own rushing splendor, and a shape so sat within as one whom years deform. Um, so the image of the young moon, the new moon, holding the old moon in her arms, does anyone know what that image is? Is that familiar, Coleridgeans, to anyone? Do you remember it at all? No. It's OK. It's not Kublai Khan. I know it's not. It's, it's not um, Kublai Khan. It's the one that's No, that's Ross at Midnight. Um, although there is a moon yeah. in that, you're right. That's the moon I was thinking of. Um, it, it's in his great ode called Dejection, an ode, which is, do you know it? Yeah. Which is his um, uh, reboot, you could say, of the Intimations Ode. Um, he read Wordsworth's Intimations Ode and then wrote this ode called Dejection, um, which has the line, remember the intimations of it begins, there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to meet it seemed apparelled in celestial light. And think of the idea of being apparelled in light when you read The Triumph of Life. In Dejection and Ode, he begins, there was a time when though my path was rough, um, the hope within me dallied with despair. Um, and 
it begins, remember we talked a little bit about ballads. Dejection and Ode begins with a motto or epigraph from the ballad of Sir Patrick Spence. Um, Sir Patrick Spence is one of the great old ballads. Coleridge really, really loved it. Famous Scot Scottish ballad. Um, and the quotation is, last night I saw the new moon with the old moon in her arms, and I fear, I fear, O oh master dear, that we shall come to harm, or in some editions, that we shall have a deadly storm. And um, Coleridge then begins the published version of the ballad. Well, if the bard was weather-wise that made the grand old ballad of Sir Patrick Spence, a storm is coming. So the idea is, you know, do people know Red Sky at morning, Sailor Take Warning, Red Sky at night, Sailor's Delight? Um, so the idea is that um, it's a prognostication of storm. Um, if on a night of new moon, that is um, just the barest crescent moon, if on the night of a crescent moon, um, you can see um, the shadow of the full disk of the moon. Has anyone ever seen that? You can see it on very clear nights. You see a crescent and the shadow of the full disk of the moon. Um, That'll be if the moon is just setting at sunset or just rising before sunrise. The idea is if you see the shadow of the, of the whole moon, that's described as the new moon with the old moon in her arms. Um, the idea is if you can see that, it's because it's spectacularly clear. And if it's spectacularly clear, that can be a warning of high wind um, and, a, and a certain kind of storm. It's, um, it's a certain meteorological pattern will yield that clarity. Um, so it's often taken as a prognostication of storm, if you can see those things. Now we have barometers. Um, but back then, they had the moon, um, or the color of the sky at morning and at night. Um, so that's what Shelley is describing here. The chariot is coming, um, like the young moon, when on the sunlit limits of the night her white shell trembles amid crimson air. So the young moon is like a white shell trembling amid crimson air. And whilst the sleeping tempest gathers might, that's the clarity is um, suggesting the wind that's going to come, doth as a herald of its coming, to herald the coming of the tempest, doth as a herald of its coming bear the ghost of her dead mother, whose dim form bends in dark ether from her infant's chair. Now, if you go back, I won't have the same um, uh, page numbers as you, but if you go back to Prometheus Unbound, Act 4, line 206, you'll see an earlier version of this image. If you find it in, in the uh, later edition of the Norton, just say the page number, Danielle, or um, anyone. Actual, Line 206. 275. 275. I need to get that edition. It's obviously got a lot more in it. Um, I had it, but I lost it, but I'll have to get another one. Um, so Ioni says, I see a chariot 
like that thinnest boat in which the mother of the months is born by ebbing light into her western cave when she of springs from interlunar dreams or which is curved an orb-like canopy of gentle darkness and the hills and woods distinctly seen through that dusk airy veil regard like shapes in an enchanter's glass and then she describes the chariots chariot its wheels are solid clouds as urine gold such as the genii of the thunderstorm pile on the floor of the illumined sea when the sun rushes under it they roll and move and grow as with an inward wind within it sits a winged infant white its countenance like the whiteness of bright snow that's the new moon um, white its countenance like the whiteness of bright snow its plumes are as feathers of sunny frost its limbs gleam white through the wind-flowing folds of its white robe, woof of ethereal pearl. Its hair is white, the brightness of white light scattered in strings, yet its two eyes are heavens of liquid darkness. Um, that image, which is an image of great beauty and hope, here is turned into an image of despair in the triumph of life. So there like the young moon on the sunlit limits of the night. Think what a beautiful description that is, that the limits of the night are sunlit because we're seeing the very edge of night as we look up into the sky, as the sun is about to rise. And you can see that the limits of the night, the place where night is ending, that's sunlit. And in that sun, we can see the sun because we see it illuminating the edge of the moon. That's when you see the moon, you're seeing sunlight. The moon is out of the shadow of Earth, which is why you see it. So there on the sunlit limits of the night, you see just the outline of the new moon. Um, and her white shell trembles amid crimson air. And whilst the sleeping tempest gathers might, doth as a herald of its coming bear the ghost of her dead mother whose dim form bends in dark ether from her infant's chair. Her infant's, the chair in which her infant is carrying her. So, just like that, like a chariot carrying a ghost, so came a chariot on the silent storm of its own rushing splendor, and a shape so sat within as one whom years deform. So in that chariot is something simply called a shape. Um, if you know Yeats's poem, Among School Children, does anyone know that great poem? That's the one that ends, oh, body swayed to music, oh, brightening glance. How can we know the dancer from the dance? Well, in that poem, he talks about what mother with a shape upon her lap, honey of generation had betrayed, um, what mother with such a shape on her lap, um, would think that it was worth it, that it was a good thing to have that child um, if she could see him with 60 or more winters on his head. So um, that idea of a mother with a shape on its lap and that shape turning into something old and decrepit, that's what um, Yeats is getting out of Shelley. Um, Yeats was obsessed with Shelley, with good reason. Um, 
So came a chariot on the silent storm of its own rushing splendor. It is shape. So sat within as one whom years deform beneath a dusky hood and double cape crouching within the shadow of a tomb. So there is a shape that looks like someone deformed by years at a graveyard wearing a dusky hood and a double cape and crouching within the shadow of a tomb either out of mourning for someone who's already dead or thinking of their own death and or what seemed the head a cloud like crepe was bent a dun and faint ethereal gloom tempering the light so in the shape there's a cloud that looks like crepe like mourning um, like a veil of mourning Um, and that makes the shape dark even though the light is so incredibly intense upon the chariot's beam that is the thing pulling the chariot upon the chariot's beam a Jaina's visage shadow did assume the guidance of that wonder-winged team. So there's a shadow on the beam of the chariot driving it. Jaina's visage means it has how many faces? Two or four, depending on the myth. Um, January, you all know the month January is named after Janus because it's the month that looks back at the previous year and forward to the new year. Janus is the god of thresholds. Um, sometimes depicted as having two faces, looking forward and backward, sometimes as having four faces, looking into all the cardinal points of the compass. So a Janus visit shadow was driving the team, the um, animals pulling the chariot. He had the guidance of that wonder-winged team. The shapes, there's that word again, shapes, which drew it in thick lightnings were lost. So he couldn't see what was drawing the shadow because they were lost in thick lightnings. I heard alone, that is all I heard, not I was the only one to hear, but I heard alone, the only thing I um, could tell of them, was that I heard on the air's soft stream the music of their ever-moving winds all the four faces of that charioteer, so now we know it's a four-faced Janus, all the four faces of that charioteer had their eyes banded. So this feels really strongly like allegory. Um, And he's about to treat it like allegory. That is, so here is a shadow with four faces driving the chariot, guiding it, but all four faces of this shadow had its eyes blindfolded. All the four faces of that charioteer had their eyes banded. And then a kind of observation about this. Little prophet brings speed in the van and blindness in the rear. So it somehow seems to be an image of life itself. Everyone is hurrying blindly. And that's what he's already been saying. But now the chariot itself seems to suggest that. Little Prophet brings speed in the van that is going forward. The van is the front, as in the vanguard of an army. Or, um, so Little Prophet brings speed in the van and blindness in the rear. Nor then avail the beams that quench the sun. Hang on to that word quench because it's going to come up again 
later, nor then avail the beams that quench the sun. So all this light, but it does no good. Nor then avail the beams that quench the sun, or that these banded eyes could pierce the sphere of all that is, has been, or will be done. So if the eyes of that creature could see everything, past, present, or future, it makes no difference because they're blindfolded. So ill was the car guided. It's just crashing along. But it passed with solemn speed, majestically on. The crowd gave way, so the chariot is charging through the crowd. Remember the million, each person in the crowd looking like one of the million leaves of summer's beer. The, the chariot, guided by a blind god, pulled by shapes, lost in lightning, goes charging through the crowd. The crowd gave way. And I arose, aghast. Couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I arose, aghast, or seemed to rise, so mighty was the trance. He's not sure that he actually got up. He felt that he did, but it was a trance that he was in or seemed to rise, so mighty was the trance, and saw, like clouds upon the thunder blast, the million, all those people, with fierce song and maniac dance raging around. So millions of people singing and dancing like maniacs and raging around. Such seemed the jubilee. So it looked like a moment of jubilee. Such seemed the jubilee as when to greet some conqueror's advance, imperial Rome poured forth her living sea from senate house and prison and theater when freedom left those who upon the free had bound a yoke which soon they stooped to bear. So again, a very fast simile. Part of the amazingness of the triumph of life and the reason for memorizing it is that it goes so to so many places so quickly that memorizing it is the way to really have it in your mind. But what he says is, all those people were dancing. It was like in the days of imperial Rome. Imperial Rome is when? Imperial doesn't just mean Rome with a nice um, Homeric adjective added to it, like <coughs> swift-footed Achilles. Imperial Rome talk, is talking about a certain period in Rome's history. Sorry? After the Republic. After the Republic. Yeah. yeah, after Augustus, um, when Rome is no longer a republic but is now an empire ruled by an emperor or by a Caesar. So this looked like Rome when everyone came charging out of Senate, House, and theater, and wherever they are um, to greet some conqueror's advance when the, um, if you saw Rome, if you saw the HBO series, has anyone seen it? Um, they have some good triumphs in Rome. Um, and what happens is the um, victor, the victorious emperor, comes back with um, all his soldiers in a parade. <coughs> it's where the idea of parades come from, I believe. I don't think there were parades before, um, before Roman triumphs. And they come back 
with all the soldiers and all the victorious soldiers parading and with their prisoners, including the chiefs of those they've defeated, chained to the chariot in which the emperor is riding. So there's a chariot in which the victorious emperor is riding, mission accomplished, and chained to the chariot are those he's conquered who are going to go to their deaths. First, they're displayed um, to all the Roman people who jeer at them and mock them, and then they're executed. Um, so it's a particularly Roman and very grim um, scene of celebration, a uh, very famous scene of celebration. Um, and um, that's what the word triumph means. A triumph literally means a conqueror's parade showing what he, showing his victories and the humiliation of those he's defeated. Cleopatra and Antony Cleopatra commit suicide because she finds out, among the reasons she does, is she finds out that Caesar, Augustus Caesar, intends to lead her in triumph through Rome. So she would be part of this humiliating, um, um, this humiliating display um, in which all the millions who lived in Rome, in and around Rome, would come out to celebrate the Roman victory over her. Um, so that's what this looks like now. Here's the chariot of life. And the millions of people on the highway who at first seemed to not know where they were going, now they're celebrating. And it was like Rome. And when did this happen? When it was no longer a republic. When Augustus Caesar made it into an empire, a dictatorship. When freedom left those... So when Rome gave up its own freedom, when freedom left those who upon the free had bound a yoke, which soon they stooped to bear. So when Rome started conquering other lands and didn't let other lands be free anymore, they then gave up their own freedom. They soon stooped to bear the yoke that they had imposed on others. That in two lines is the history of the decline of Rome, not yet of its fall, but the beginning of the decline of Rome. So that's what it was like when everyone in Rome celebrated Rome's imperial power, which meant that they were debasing themselves. Um, that's something that is consistently happens in Shelley, is that the celebration of freedom becomes an assertion of superiority, which then tends to um, be a counter-movement against freedom because the belief in superiority is a belief that those who are inferior, you are their masters. And when that happens, you give up your commitment to freedom. And Shelley saw that happen in Rome. He worries that that will happen in Prometheus Unbound. Um, he saw it happen in Britain, which was aspiring to empire, and you can see it many times since. He saw it happen with Napoleon, um, who began as um, a champion of freedom and then became an autocratic emperor. Um, this consistently happens, that freedom risks turning into the very thing it rebelled against. That happened in Rome.
So soon the Romans stoop to bear the, the yoke which they imposed on others, nor wanted here the just similitude of a triumphal pageant. So he says, that simile I just used, that it was like everyone coming out to see a Roman triumph, that was a, right, that was a good simile, nor wanted here the just similitude of a triumphal pageant, for where'er the chariot rolled, a captive multitude was driven. So wherever the chariot went, there were, a captive multitude went with it. All those <coughs> who had grown old in power or misery, all who have their age subdued by action or by suffering, and whose hour was drained to its last sand in weal or woe, so that the trunk survived both fruit and flower, all those whose fame or infamy must grow till the great winter lay the form and name of their own earth with them forever low, all but the sacred few who could not tame their spirits to the conqueror, but as soon as they had touched the world with living flame fled back like eagles to their native noon, or those who put aside the diadem of earthly thrones or gems till the last one were there. So who's the multitude that the chariot is driving along? All but the sacred few. Everyone else is now a captive to the chariot. Um, it's going to turn out everyone on the road, every single person, what looked like the audience for the triumph, is actually the captives of the triumph. So it's all those whose... Um, who have their age subdued by action or by suffering, all those who were great, who subdued, who were the great people in their age, who subdued their age, either by what they did or by what they um, managed to tolerate from others, and whose hour was drained its last sand in weal or woe, no matter whether they had a good or a bad life, so that the trunks survived both fruit and flowers, so that they became old people. Um, who whatever they'd done, it doesn't matter anymore. But also all those whose fame or infamy must grow till the great winter lay the form of their own earth with them forever low. That is, all those who will be famous until the end of the world were there. All but the sacred few. So the sacred few is going to turn out to be two people. All but the sacred few who could not tame their spirits to the conqueror, who couldn't agree with the conqueror, couldn't join forces and then be conquered by the conqueror they joined forces with. But as soon as they had touched the world with living flame, they saw what the world was like, fled back like eagles to their native noon, or those who put aside the diadem of earthly thrones or gems everyone but them, till the last one were there. For they of Athens and Jerusalem were neither mid the mighty captives seen, nor mid the ribald crowd that followed them or fled before. Just pause for a second to notice these amazing rhymes. Diadem, Jerusalem, followed them. That's the Terzarima, it's easy to forget, even though you feel the rhymes constantly um, coming 
one after another, like the chariot itself, as the poem rolls onward. Um, it's easy to just get so lost in all the imagery and all the other things the poem is doing as not to notice how incredible these lines are, these rhymes are. Um, Jerusalem, diadem, followed them. So the only people not there were they of Athens and Jerusalem. Does the note give it to you? No. Um, yeah, it does. Um, they of Athens and Jerusalem are Socrates and Jesus. Um, they, it's Jesus um, who um, touched the world with living flame and then fled back like an eagle to his native noon. It's Socrates who refused power, was uninterested in power and earthly stones, thrones or gems. Um, they of Athens and Jerusalem were neither mid the mighty captive scene nor mid the ribald crowd that followed them or fled before. But plenty of other people, as you'll see, are seen. Um, so one thing you can say about Socrates and Jesus is they never wrote. They are the two great figures who never wrote a word, um, who are not producers themselves of history, but simply fictional characters that other people wrote about. That is, there was a real Socrates and perhaps a real Jesus, um, but the Socrates and Jesus that we know are the Socrates and Jesus who are unreal, who are characters in other people's fictionalizing writing, and they never wrote themselves. Um, what we know of Aristotle, whatever legends we have of Aristotle, we also have a fact, which is here's what he wrote. Whatever legends we have of Plato, we also have facts. This is what he wrote. Of Socrates and Jesus, we don't. We only have legends. We only have what other people have said of them. So all till the last one were there, except they of Athens and Jerusalem, who were not mid the ribald crowd that followed them or fled before. Swift, fierce, and obscene, the wild dance maddens in the van. So in front of the chariot, remember, little prophet brings speed in the van, but now the wild dance maddens in the van. Everyone in front of the chariot is cheering it. They're so happy. They're, they're, they're just delighted with the power that they are trying to join themselves to. Swift, fierce, and obscene, the wild dance maddens in the van, and those who lead it fleet as shadows on the green outspeed the chariot, and without repose mix with each other in tempestuous measure to savage music. So they're all joining to savage music like Bacante. They mix with each other in tempestuous measure to savage music. Wilder as it grows, they, tortured in the agonizing pleasure, convulsed and on the rapid whirlwinds spun of that fierce spirit whose unholy leisure was soothed by mischief since the world begun. Doing all this, um, convulsed and dancing on the rapid whirlwind, spun of that fierce spirit whose unholy leisure was soothed by mischief since the world begun. It's a spirit that loves mischief, loves nastiness and evil and selfishness and loves this dance of nastiness and triumph. Um, all of them 
dancing on its whirlwinds throw back their heads and loose their streaming hair and in their dance round her who dims the sun maidens and youths fling their wild arms in air as their feet twinkle now recede and now bending within each other's atmosphere kindle invisibly and as they glow like moths by light attracted and repelled oft to new bright destruction come and go so remember we saw that image of moths attracted and repelled by light that is by candlelight um, a moth is attracted by the light and then repelled by the heat um, so in the same way here are these people dancing like insects like moths swirling around each other maniacally dancing and like moths burning themselves up they often new bright destruction come and go till like two clouds into one veil impelled that shake the mountains when their lightnings mingle and die in rain the fiery band which held their nature snaps so they're constantly interacting with each other having sex with each other dancing with each other wildly um, uh, celebrating maniacally celebrating with each other until like when two storms meet in a valley and explode into lightning the fiery band which held their nature snaps ear the shock cease to tingle one falls and then another in the path senseless so now they just fall unconscious or perhaps dead but it's going to be unconscious in the path where they've been rushing around nor is the desolation single they're all falling it's not just a few it's not a single person here and there nor is the desolation single yet ere I can say where the chariot hath passed over them so they fall he doesn't even know where but the chariot passes over them runs over them nor other trace I find but as a foam after the ocean's wrath is spent upon the desert shore so he doesn't see all these dancers now it's just like foam after an ocean crashes its waves on a deserted shore and then withdraws but then he looks behind the chariot this is what's left of them behind old men and women foully disarrayed shake their gray hair in the insulting wind so here again we get an image or an emblem of life that in youth you dance with joy and exuberance and celebration of life and then the chariot of life to which you're captive runs over you passes over you and then afterwards you're left old men and women foully disarrayed shaking gray hair in the insulting wind and what do they do they limp in the dance and strain with limbs decayed to reach the car of light which leaves them still farther behind and deeper in the shade but not the less with impotence of will they wheel though ghastly shadows interpose round them and round each other 
So the chariots leaving them behind, having run them over and left them old and broken. But still they're trying to dance to it and trying to catch up to it. And they wheel, though ghastly shadows interpose around them and around each other, and fulfill their work. And to the dust whence they arose sink. And corruption veils them as they lie. And frost in these performs what fire in those. So now these old people are turned into frost and they're just as destroyed by the coldness of old age and encroaching death as the fire at the front of the chariot, the fiery power at the front of the chariot was destructive to them. And frost in these performs what fire in those. Struck to the heart by this sad pageantry. So this is what he's seen. And he's struck to the heart by this sad pageantry. Half to myself, I said, and what is this? Whose shape is that within the car, and why? So there's a second version of that question. None seemed to know whither he went, nor whence he came, nor why he made none of the multitude. Here we get struck to the heart by this sad pageantry. Half to myself, I said, and what is this? Whose shape is that within the car, and why? I would have added, is all here amiss? But a voice answered, life. So who's in the car? Life itself. That's the shape in the chariot. Sitting there as one who appears <coughs> deform. Life. I turned and knew, oh, heaven have mercy on such wretchedness that what I thought was an old root which grew to strange distortion out of the hillside was indeed one of that deluded crew. So one of the members of this triumph, which he thought was a root growing in the hillside, was actually one of the crew of those whom life passed over. Um, this is very Dantesque. This is what keeps happening to Dante in um, Inferno and to some extent in Purgatorio. That is that he'll ask a question, then he'll realize that something is a person, in particular in the wood of the suicides um, in Inferno. Yeah? The Trinity is uh, St. Paul, too. Why? Of um, hearing a voice and changing. Okay, yeah, and, and being dazzled and blinded on the road to Tarsus. Okay, good. Um, so there is someone, he, now he's talking to someone. Who is this? It, indeed, one of that deluded crew. And what I thought was grass, I realized now. Um, I turned and knew that the grass which me thought hung so wide and white was but his thin, discolored hair, and that the holes it vainly sought to hide were or had been eyes. So what he thought was a plant, a tree, a root, and grass and holes were actually, it was the figure of a person, a dead person, it turns out. If thou canst forbear to join the dance, which I had well forborne, if only I had not joined the dance, if you can stop yourself from joining it, said the grim feature of my thought aware. You should have a footnote telling you the grim feature is a phrase from Paradise Lost. It's the description of death in Paradise Lost. Um, 
If thou canst forbear to join the dance, which I had well forborne, said the grim feature of my thought aware, I will tell all that which to this deep scorn led me and my companions, and relate the progress of the pageant since the morn. If thirst of knowledge doth not thus abate, follow it even to the night, but I am weary. So if you still want to know more, you can follow the chariot, but I can't follow it anymore. But if you want to know what happened, listen to me. And hang on now to the word thirst before we looked at the word quench. Um, Now look at the word thirst. These are words that are going to return. If thirst of knowledge doth not thus abate, follow it even to the night, but I am weary. Then, like one who with the weight of his own words is staggered, wearily, he paused. And ere he could resume, I cried, first, who art thou? And then he begins his long response. Before thy memory, I feared, loved, hated, suffered, did, and died. That's an amazing one-line description of human life. So what does life consist in? Well, I lived before you. Let me unpack that for you. I feared, loved, hated, suffered, did, that is, did whatever I did, and died. Before thy memory, that is, before you were born, um, 10 years before you were born, I died. Before thy memory, I feared, loved, hated, suffered, did, and died. And if the spark with which heaven lit my spirit, earth had with pure nutriment supplied. So my spirit was lit by heaven. Trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is, with, who is our home. If the spark with which heaven lit my spirit, earth had with pure nutriment supplied, if earth had given a pure nutriment to the fire that heaven lit my spirit with, corruption would not now thus much inherit of what was once Rousseau. So I wouldn't have corrupted so much if I had lived on earth, if, I, if, if earth had made it possible for me to cherish the spark with which heaven lit my spirit. Corruption would not now thus much inherit of what was once Rousseau, nor this disguise stain that within which still disdains to wear it. So I was corrupted by earth, and I am now covered by something which stains the inner me, even though I still disdain to wear it. If I have been extinguished, yet there rise a thousand beacons from the spark I bore. So I may be extinguished, but um, my sparks and ashes have caused the enlightenment. A thousand beacons have arisen from the spark I bore, the spark from heaven. So do people know who Rousseau is, Jean-Jacques Rousseau? One of the great figures of the Enlightenment, um, the writer of the discourse, the um, discourses on equality and the social contract, which is um, in part and in fairly large part a source for the US Constitution. Um, there are a lot of 
differences between the U.S. Constitution and the social contract, but a lot of the deep thinking is the same. Um, he was a writer who wrote very intensely about himself, very autobiographically. In his confessions, he writes about himself with an openness that is almost unprecedented in writing. He describes um, himself as honestly as he can. Um, and um, he basically says, you know, I imagine that I'm no worse than other people. But he describes things that no one has described before. Um, he describes learning to masturbate, um, for example, which no one had written about before Rousseau. Um, kind of a devastating openness. He was also a strange and paranoid person. Um, he also loved nature and wrote extraordinarily about nature. You will remember that Byron has that footnote in Child Harold where he talks about um, the Jura Mountains and says Rousseau set his novel Julie there, um, and it's a spectacularly great novel, but that the mountains have done for him what he could not have done for them. Remember we looked at that footnote early on? Um, that landscape, those mountains have done for him what he could not have done for them because they were so amazing. Um, Shelley and Byron loved Rousseau, loved his writing. Um, for the purposes of this poem, though, the most important thing to know about Rousseau is that when he writes about the self within nature, the closest English analog to what Rousseau does is Wordsworth. And you won't go wrong if you see here that Rousseau is actually Wordsworth. That Wordsworth is still, as Harold Bloom puts it, technically speaking, alive, since Wordsworth is going to live another 28 years after the triumph of life. Um, Wordsworth is alive and being the um, epic renegade that Byron is complaining all the Lake poets have turned into. Um, he's become a conservative old fart. Um, that's why Shelley and why we begin our class, began the class with Shelley's poem to Wordsworth um, and the loss that Shelley feels. Um, now he's talking to someone corrupted by life, whose spirit was lit by heaven, but now is corrupted by life. And the person he's actually talking to, much more than Rousseau, is Wordsworth. So Rousseau is a stand-in for Wordsworth here, um, as will become clearer and clearer as we go through the rest of the poem. So corruption would not now thus much inherit of what was once Rousseau nor this disguise stain that within which still disdains to wear it. If I've been extinguished, yet there rise a thousand beacons from the spark I bore. Shelley asks, and who are those chained to the car? Rousseau answers, the wise, the great, the unforgotten, they who wore miters and helms and crowns or wreaths of light. That is, all the greats in human history, those who wore miters, that is, bishops and helms, conquerors and crowns, kings or wreaths of light, that is, sages, thinkers, those who devoted themselves to the life of the mind, that is, signs of thought's empire over thought, because even they just wanted to be smarter than other people. 
Their lore, even that of those who were wreaths of light, their lore taught them not this, to know themselves. Their might could not repress the mutiny within, and for the morn of truth they feigned. Deep night caught them ere evening. They pretended to know the truth. They feigned the morn of truth, and their punishment for that was that night caught them ere evening. They were conquered by life. Shelley asks now, who is he with chin upon his breast and hands crossed on his chain? So Shelley points to one person chained to the chariot, chin and hand like this. Who's that? Shelley asks and Rousseau answers. The child of a fierce hour. He sought to win the world and all it did contain of greatness in its hope destroyed. So he destroyed everything great about the world in trying to win it. And more of fame and peace than virtue self can gain without the opportunity which virtue would never have. So he destroyed more of fame and peace than virtue itself can gain without the opportunity which bore him on its eagle's pinion opportunity did to the peak from which a thousand climbers have fallen, have before fallen as Napoleon fell. So the first named person on the chariot is Napoleon, chained to the chariot of life, destroyed, brought to the peak from which he fell. I felt my cheek alter to see the great form pass away whose grasp had left the giant world so weak that every pygmy kicked it as it lay, and much I grieve to think how power and will in opposition rule our mortal day, and why God made irreconcilable good and the means of good. So a very grim idea that God has made irreconcilable good and the means of good, that to do good, you can't be a good person because you won't have the power to do good. So all those in power will only do evil. And that causes him grief. Napoleon is the example of that. The person who began doing good, being a liberator, and becoming a conqueror. And for despair, I half disdained mine eye's desire to fill with the spent vision of the times that were and scarce have ceased to be. So I wanted to see more, but I was so despairing that I almost disdained my desire to see more. But Rousseau goes on. Dost thou behold, said then my guide, those spoilers spoiled. That is, powerful figures despoiled themselves in the end, as all are. Do you guys know the book Hollywood Babylon? You ever want to really have an interesting experience of grimness? It's by Kenneth Anger. There are actually two volumes, Hollywood Babylon and Hollywood Babylon 2. And it's basically um, an amazing account of all the disasters that the great Hollywood stars experienced. Um, just incredible. Um, how awful their lives were. Just star after star after star and how awful their lives were. So he delights in this. Hollywood Babylon takes a very camp delight in it. But that's what this is like. Look at all these people. Frederick, the great, Voltaire, Rousseau's correspondent, the great Enlightenment philosopher, the best of, best of all possible worlds. Um, Frederick and Kant, the philosopher, and Catherine, the great, and Leopold, chained, hoary, 
anarchs, demagogue, and sage, whose name the fresh world thinks already old. So the greatest figures of their time, and they're already simply failures from the past. For in the battle they and life did wage, she remained the conqueror. So they fought against life, against the facts, the grim facts of life, but she conquered them. But Rousseau says, I, unlike them, I was overcome by my own, by my own heart alone, which neither age, nor tears, nor infamy, nor now the tomb could temper to its object. So Rousseau says, unlike them, I destroyed my, my, it was my own heart that destroyed me, but at least I was true to that. And everything life does, age, tears, infamy, the tomb, couldn't destroy my heart, but my heart destroyed me. Let them pass, I cried. The world in its mysterious doom is not so much more glorious than it was that I desire to worship those who drew new figures on its false and fragile glasses, the old faded. So I don't care about all these people. They did nothing. Um, they didn't change the world, and I'm not interested in them. But Rousseau replies, figures ever new rise on the bubble. Paint them how you may. They're always people showing up, taking positions of leadership, and screwing up the world. Always. Whenever anyone is defeated, someone will take their place and screw up the world. Our shadow, um, sorry, figures ever new, rise on the bubble, paint them how you may. We have but thrown as those before us threw our shadows on it as it passed away. But mark how chained to that triumphal chair the mighty phantoms of an elder day. So these were people from the recent history, Frederick and Kant and Leopold and um, Voltaire and Catherine the Great. They're from recent history, but look, Mark, how chained to the triumphal chair, the mighty phantoms of an elder day. All that is mortal of great Plato there expiates the joy and woe his master knew not. So there's Plato, who is suffering because of the joy and woe he felt that Socrates was indifferent to. Socrates was genuinely indifferent to life, but almost no one else is. All that is mortal, great Plato there expiates the joy and woe his master knew not. That star that ruled his doom was far too fair, and life, where long that flower of heaven grew not, conquered the heart by love, which gold or pain or age or sloth or slavery could subdue not. So Plato was in love with a man named Aster, and his heart was conquered by love, even though Gold and pain and age and sloth and slavery couldn't subdue him. Love did. So even love's not a good thing. Let's just do two more characters. This is Mary Shelley filled us in. And near him walk the Macedonian twain. Um, that is Aristotle and Alexander the Great, um, as we're about to find out. And near blank walk the blank twain, the tutor and his pupil. That is Aristotle, who was Alexander's teacher. Um, in Among School Children, um, Yeats says, Plato thought nature a paradigm that, uh, sorry, Plato thought nature a spume that played upon a ghostly paradigm of things. Great description of Plato. Plato thought nature a spume 
that played upon a ghostly paradigm of things. Solider Aristotle played the taws upon the backside of a king of kings. So Aristotle, um, much solider than Plato, um, whipped Alexander when he was an unruly student. So that's who's walking now. The tutor and his pupil, whom dominion followed as tame as vulture in a chain. The world was darkened beneath either pinion of him, whom from the flock of conquerors fame singled out as her thunder-bearing minion. The other long outlived both woes and wars, throned in new thoughts of men, and still had kept the jealous keys of truth's eternal doors, if Bacon's eagle spirit had not leapt like lightning out of darkness. And now we get to Bacon. So um, they were great in their time, and now they're chained to the car. We will pick up here, and we'll have to move a little bit faster on Tuesday. But, you know, this is arguably, plausibly, the greatest poem ever written in English. Um, I'm not sure I think that, although I'm not sure I don't. Um, but it's an arguable claim, um, greater even than Paradise Lost. So we'll spend more time on it on uh, Tuesday. All right, have a good weekend. Study, study, study. Is that for Richard? Um, it's for student or yeah. academic services. Okay. But yeah.